Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Hello and welcome back to the show. It's been a while, hasn't it? This is Shane Lamaster and Conversations with the Mind. Hey, I just wanted to take a, a couple minutes out here to express my gratitude and thanks for your continued listenership. Even amidst uh, multiple long extended breaks I've been having to take due to school and and uh, other life issues going on. Um, been dealing with you know some crazy medical issues, some crazy neuropathic nerve pain uh literally feels like having my skin ripped off my body uh most nights and uh terrible sleep so a lot of stuff going on in my life uh that has been preventing me from you know really having the energy or the time to to do the podcast and i really miss it and i miss all of you and i miss uh i miss talking with uh guests and things so let's get this thing rolling back again uh, i want to take a minute to thank you for coming if you're a new listener, thank you for joining us. If you've uh, been a listener for a while, thank you for your continued listenership. If you wouldn't mind, uh, please, please, please like and share our posts on uh, all social media. And, you know, that's how we get the word out about this conversation. That's how we get the word out about this podcast. And I need your help to increase our listenership, okay? Um, I've been doing this podcast now for a few years and, uh, you know, just have not broken through that, uh, that little ceiling um, that apparently happens to people who, who do podcasts for a long time. They'll eventually break through a ceiling where they'll get a ton of listeners at some point. I have not broken through that point yet, and I'm working. I'm working on it. So please help and uh, do your part by sharing and telling other people about the podcast. That would be so amazing. Also, go check out our YouTube page. That's MindOps YouTube page, M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Uh, there you'll find uh, videos of all of our podcasts, or at least most of them. You'll also find uh, playlists that I've curated and put together of YouTube videos related to a lot of the topics that we talk about here on the show. So if you're interested and you want more information about that stuff, just go check out our MindOps YouTube page and check it out. Uh, like and subscribe there too if you can. It really does help and it helps with that algorithm that uh, gets us more listens. All right, so welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, let's get started.
Okay, let's hear some good news. We are in dire need of good news. Uh, our good news story today comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org. And the title of the article, if you're interested, you can go read it, is UK's largest carbon capture project will turn 40,000 tons of CO2 into baking soda. Awesome. Uh, I don't know if uh, if I, I don't think I'm doing this in, on purpose, but a lot of my good news stories, uh, at least in the recent podcasts, have been related to environmental things, to technology that, that can be helpful for the environment and things like that. I don't know why I'm on this kind of kick about the environment, but uh, I don't know, maybe environmental stuff uh, and the improving of the environment just seems so much more doable these days than uh, focusing on on improving the human condition and the human race. Uh, man, there are some wacky things and wacky people going on out there. So let's focus on the environment today. All right. So uh, this company called Tata Chemicals, I love that name, Tata Chemicals in Europe, uh, opened UK's first industrial scale carbon capture and usage plant uh, last week. So this is a significant milestone in the race to meet the UK and the world's net zero targets. Um, so the way it works, and they don't go into too much uh, technical detail, but the plant uh, captures 40,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide each year, which is the equivalent of taking over 20,000 cars off the road and 10 times more than what um, uh, the other uh, second largest um, carbon capture factory can capture. So that's awesome. Uh, it says that uh, it was a $24 million investment uh, made by Tata Chemicals in order to um, to do this process, which doesn't seem like that much. $24 million investment in order to take 20,000 cars uh, worth of carbon off the road each year sounds amazing uh, for the for the price. So hopefully it'll get cheaper over time too. That's awesome. Um, let's see. So let's see. Uh, they talk about, they call it the party trick. Uh, carbon dioxide captured from energy generation emissions is being purified to food and pharmaceutical grade and used as a raw material in the manufacture of sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, which will be known as Echo Carb. Uh, this unique and innovative process is patented in the UK with further patents pending in key territories around the world. So very interested to keep an eye on this. Um, the baking soda or the, the byproduct can also be used uh, in hemodialysis to treat people living with kidney disease. can be used uh, in essential items like glass, washing detergents, detergents, pharmaceutical products, food, animal feed, and in water purification. That's pretty awesome. What a great... Uh, what a great little uh, project they got going on there. So that's our good news story for today. Now on to the section of the podcast where I talk about what's been my, on my mind lately and really what's been on the minds of a lot of people in the United States recently uh, has been this overturning of Roe versus Wade, right? Abortion rights. Man, is that a heated topic. Um I'm seeing so many people like disown family and disown friends because they have differing opinions on these things. And that is just, that is really whack. Um, you know, I have lots of family and friends who disagree with a lot of my opinions and, uh, I don't know why it's so difficult for people not to see past those things. You know, my friendships, my relationships, these people that I'm friends with are great people. You know, I just, I, I can disagree with their opinions and still be nice to them, can still be friendly with them, can even still have good relationships with them. So this Roe v. Wade thing, um, I haven't been following it a lot, 
because it, it, it can be quite depressing to do so. And I t- tend to try and focus on positive news. But it has thrown the country into an ups, an uproar. There's been protests and riots and um, threats of violence and all sorts of things. Um, you know, people you know, tearing down, uh, you know, damaging, vandalizing courthouses, things like that. So it, it is a very hot topic. Um, and, you know, my personal opinion is that the the federal government should not have really any sort of overreach into into women's reproductive rights into most of our human rights you know those things are they should be guaranteed uh, by our constitution our pursuit to happiness right uh, abortion can even fit into that category too um you know all sorts of yeah, i know i just don't just don't know you know why people think the way they do around this but um yeah, my, my opinion is that the federal government do, shouldn't have any oversight uh, or overreach in this area. And uh, so I was I was very disappointed, number one, that the feds made it uh, federally illegal, which is stupid, um, because they're way overstepping their, their bounds and their reach. However, there is something promising that I think came out of this that I'm trying to focus more on and trying to uh, let people know um, so that hopefully it, it lessens the blow a little bit from this Roe v. Wade thing is that um, the the practice of abortion now goes back to uh, states' rights and states' decisions independent, independently of the feds. Uh, the states get to make decisions on what their laws about abortion are going to be. And I am in huge favor of states' rights, huge favor of that. Um, the way the United States was created, you may, I don't know, most, a lot of people don't know this, but, um, this was created as independent sovereign states, uh, that just come together collectively in order to help them protect each other, you know, and to help a trade and things like that. But the states are ultimately, you know, to be viewed as independent sovereign countries almost, you know, with their own individual laws and things like that. And the feds try to put their fingers in and control all the states. Um, So I'm a a big proponent of states' rights. That's one thing that I think um, got highlighted during this Roe v. Wade thing that I'm um, actually excited about is that people are realizing that – you know, the states that they live in has a big impact and the, the way that they vote has a big impact uh, locally for some of these things. So I'm not exactly sure what the laws are here in Colorado uh, for abortion. Um, you know, I, I'm not uh, in the market for one myself, so I, I don't really look into that. But um, I think it's, it's important that, um, you know, each state has their own say. You know, different people have different cultures, different religions in different areas of the, of the country. And, um, you know, the state's right thing makes it uh, makes it less, um, I guess, less damaging. If if you live in a state where abortion is illegal and you need one, uh, you know, people have been traveling across state lines to have it done, things like that. But the state's right issue gives you the option to move to a different state that is more in line with your your political leanings, your religious leanings, whatever. 
so I don't think a lot of people choose their their living situation or their location based off of that, although maybe we should start thinking about that. I think most people choose it based off of employment or um, where they grew up uh, or maybe just getting getting stuck somewhere, unfortunately. But if we can um, you know, begin to think that way and, and choose where we live uh, based off of how that state is run, um, I think it's it's another great way to to vote, right? You're, like you're voting with your dollar when you when you buy a Starbucks. You know you're supporting them, but you're voting uh, for your state and for your uh, your laws in your state if you live there. You know, uh, if, even if you don't vote for them, it's it's a yeah, sort of a a way that you're supporting um, the state in that way, I suppose. Anyway. Uh, I think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a huge step back for women and women's rights in this country. Um, and I hope that it, it uh, you know, in the end, I hope that, that something positive comes out of this. If anything, um, more people hopefully start to wake up and realize that uh, what's what's happening as far as power and control between the government and its citizens is uh, is getting worse and worse. So, if anything, I hope it brings more attention to that and helps us uh, helps us try and prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. All right, that's my two cents. Um, our guest today, awesome guest, Dr. Megan Oxley. So, Megan is the former VP of the American Society of Ketamine Physicians, Psychotherapists, and Practitioners. Uh, she is the medical director at Michigan Progressive Health and um, is featured in Double Blind Magazine as one of the best ketamine clinics in the U.S. Uh, she is very skilled and very uh, interested in mind-body therapies, the mind-body connection. Uh, she is classically trained as an emergency medicine physician, and she uh, considers herself an adventurer, not only of our world adventurer of our of our wonderful planet but an adventurer of her mind and uh in the psychedelic realm we call that a psychonaut someone who is an explorer almost like an astronaut of their inner consciousness i definitely consider myself in that category so dr megan oxley uh it was awesome to be able to sit down and talk with her i really hope that you all enjoy this and again thank you for continuing to listen I apologize for the long um, breaks in between some of these most recent episodes. Like I mentioned before in the introduction, I've been dealing with a lot of medical issues, um, a lot of school stuff too, you know, uh, an update on that. I just uh, passed my preliminary examinations in my PhD program, so that marks the halfway point, and uh, all done with classes, and uh, finished that exam, which is a huge, huge step forward. And now I get to move on to the second half of my PhD, which is designing and running and publishing, hopefully, my own research. Uh, I've recently, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that my research in my PhD has been focused primarily on mystical type experiences um, and the benefits that can come from those from psychedelics. However, um, I have recently taken a drastic shift in my direction in my research, uh, most mostly because of uh, my own chronic pain issues that have flared up in the last nine months and have left me quite miserable. Um, so now I am pursuing a new direction with my dissertation, 
looking at uh, the effects that psilocybin has on uh, people's autobiographical narratives, the things that we, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, and specifically narratives around chronic pain. So those who suffer with chronic pain are, are desperate in, in trying to seek alternative forms of treatment. Western medicine mostly only focuses on, on the, uh, the biological aspects, the physical aspects of pain, and for a large part negates the, uh, the mental health aspects of pain, uh, the emotional aspects of pain, and the social aspects of pain. So psychedelics uh, have the opportunity to become a new alternative for chronic pain, and they're already starting to find some beneficial results for pain uh, with LSD and with some other psychedelics related to, you know, cluster migraines, things like that. But uh, very few studies on chronic pain and the effects that psychedelics can have on chronic pain uh, in the in the sense of uh, changing consciousness around it, right? So our mind is super powerful, and if we can change our beliefs about our pain or the stories that we tell ourselves about our pain, um, Hopefully, we can modify it and, and live a more um, happy lifestyle. So that's kind of the, the new direction I'm going with my dissertation. I'm very happy with it, um, and I start that process uh, now. Um, so it's going to be a, you know, a busy couple of years designing and running this research. Uh, if you or anybody you know is interested in participating, uh, if you've if you've uh, used psilocybin in either microdoses or macrodoses to help with uh, physical pain, um, please reach out. Reach out to me on the website, uh, mindops.com, M-I-N-D-O-P-S.com. Leave me a comment. Uh, you know, leave me a comment on YouTube or Facebook or something like that. And, uh, yeah, please connect me with these people so we can get this research out there and start um, changing uh Changing what's available out there for people with chronic pain. You know, about 20% of adults in the United States deal with chronic pain. That's one out of five people. That is insane. Uh, and the treatment methods out there right now are highly insufficient for what's going on. I mean, my own experience, I've had this terrible uh, pain for the last nine months when I lay down for, for sleep. And the doctors gave me like eight different prescription medications to try and help. None of them helped with the pain, and four of them actually started making my mental health decline quite drastically. So I took myself off of most of those meds uh, because the side effects were too bad. So the pain is still there, and now I'm just a little bit in a, in a bit of a better mood about it. Um, but just like me, like I, I need others. You know, Others and myself need alternatives. Uh, healthier alternatives, alternatives where I don't have to go to a doctor to get my pain relief because those doctors are gatekeepers. And in my experience, they have been gatekeeping me uh, away from the medications that I think would actually work for me. Um, and so I want to try and help people get away from that gatekeeper experience, give them more agency and power in their own uh, healing process, maybe even help people grow their own medicine. How amazing would that be if you could grow your own pain-relieving medicine? Uh, cannabis we can already grow, which is great for pain too, but if we can grow our own mushrooms too, uh, how wonderful would that be? So, yeah, I'm very, very excited for this new path. 
in my uh, academics. And I look forward to sharing more with you guys about what I find uh, in the future as I'm, as I'm going about the study. So, again, thank you for joining me. Um, sit back, relax, crack open your favorite drink or your favorite meal, and uh, let's get into the show. Okay, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shayla Master, and we are here for episode number 105 with very special guest, Dr. Megan Oxley. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Doing pretty good. Like we were talking about right before uh, we jumped on and started recording, you know, the, the weather in both of our areas has been a little strange. So right now in Colorado, it's, you know, five degrees outside and I'm kind of hunkered down with my four puppies and uh, just, yeah, hanging out. So I'm doing pretty good. It's yeah. Awesome. I'm really excited for us to actually be doing this today. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> it's been a long time <laughs> yeah. So uh, for the listeners, you know, that don't get to see all the, the background stuff that happens. Uh, Megan and I have been trying to connect and do this podcast now for must be six months or so. Uh, and we just keep having to put it off and put it off for any number of reasons, mostly my fault. And I, you know, definitely uh, take accountability for that, but I'm so glad that we we were able to come together and like we've been texting back and forth, you know, it will happen when it happens and it right. will be a good, it'll be yeah. a good thing. <laughs> when it happens. Yeah. Um, so the first question that I want to ask is the same question I ask every one of my guests. Um, and that is, you know, that the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. Mm. And when you hear that phrase, Conversations with the Mind, I just want to get a sense for what does that mean to you? What comes up for you? Maybe any kind of visualization or memory or, uh, yeah, just what, what comes up for you when you, when you hear conversations with the mind? What does that mean? Yeah. So I think I'm viewing it in a very internal way. So like not with a mind out over there, but like within my own mind and thinking about how a lot of the work that I, I deal with is how most of our mind is not really um, front and center. It doesn't really have a voice most of the time, right? At the table, there's this one voice that's really loud and in charge and doing all this stuff, but there's like all these other voices that are part of the conversation. And I am always working with helping people bring all of their voices to the table and try and actually make it be a conversation and not just like a one-man show. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I think like conversations means with, with the mind. It's within the own mind and like bringing them all together because that's what we are at the end of the day is all those pieces, even though there's kind of only one that we see or engage with on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to jump into that. That's such an interesting topic for me, like parts theory and, um, mm. you know, theory of mind in general, um, both our own, what we perceive as our own individual mind, but also the idea of a collective mind and us being a, a part of that as well. So mm. I definitely want to get into that. But before we do, I was yeah. wondering if you can just give the audience uh, just a brief overview of who you are and what you do sure. and, um, maybe to, to provide a little bit of context for the listeners as to, you know, where you're coming from when we are discussing these topics. Yeah. So I am an emergency medicine physician by training. I graduated in 2009. 
Um, and I spent a good deal of time in the emergency department before I kind of found my current true love, which is um, I'm the owner and founder, uh, medical director for Michigan Progressive Health. We are an integrative ketamine clinic with two locations in Michigan. Um, I've been doing ketamine infusions for mental health and chronic pain for six years now. Um, and the clinic and our scope of work has grown over the last six years. And that's really where I focus my time is intention is using ketamine and future psychedelics to help people achieve wellness, both mentally and physically. So that's a huge, or it seems like uh, for me being from the mental health field and you from the medical field, I, you know, I don't have much um, insider knowledge of the medical field myself, but that sa- that seems like quite a departure from uh, your initial training, emergency medicine, uh, mm. you know, really trying to, you know, with a focus and again, uh, this is from my ignorant mind uh, with a focus more on um, the, the body, you know, and healing the body, uh, Western medicine doesn't really delve too much into the mind and, and mind body type medicine uh, in mainstream medicine anyway. So then you have this yeah. huge shift into uh, working, you know, with ketamine and, and you mentioned chronic pain. So there are some uh, benefits to the body, but primarily when we're working with psychedelics, um, these are for mental issues, things like that. So what made you want to transition uh, your primary focus from emergency medicine, sort of Western-based medicine into this whole other realm of psychedelic medicine, which traditionally has not been Western, but it has been, um, you know, more indigenous, and then it has found its way into our Western medicine. Oh, there's so much even in that question. (laughs) Like, let's totally put a pin in the idea of chronic pain and come back. Okay. Um, yeah, ketamine. And I didn't really necessarily hundred percent understand at the time. And I'm really willing to, to be honest about my journey coming from totally Western medicine to this place where I think it's East meets West, um, where we're using the medicine, but working with the mind and like really weaving those concepts together in a beautiful way. And, um, I, I can't say that that's what I knew would happen when I started on this journey, but I'm certain very happy where I am. What I've kind of, um, the way I tell the story um, is that when you're in medicine, there were all these kind of questions and patterns that were below the surface of my training and education that didn't have like words to them, but there were all these things that didn't kind of make sense. First and foremost, I was always really struck by like why humans in general were just kind of physically sicker than any other animal on earth. Like, why did we have so many diseases when like giraffes and zebras and even dogs, dogs have more, but they don't have like wild animals don't have nearly as many diseases as we do. And I Mm -hmm. just like had a question about that in my mind. And then, you know, you're in medical school and you learn that, you know, let's say like black people have more high blood pressure than white people. And we're taught that it's genetic, but that didn't really make a lot of sense to me because we are from the same, you know, gene pool ultimately at that, at the very, very, you know, beginning of the day, that didn't make too much sense to me. And there's kind of these little examples of, you know, there's little, there's more examples of that. And I won't, you know, get into it of just where I'm like, this Western medicine doesn't quite have the right answer for this. <laughs> like that just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me especially once I got into the emergency room, there were 
patterns of illness, patterns of behavior, um, both being in the emergency room, like a response to an illness or, you know, a response to a trauma that just kept coming up over and over. And that would also include physical um, patterns as well, like allergies to medications, the amount of autoimmune conditions a person would have. And they just, they clump together in these patterns and everyone in emergency medicine kind of like you would make jokes about them. We all recognize the pattern, but we didn't understand what that was. And um, I was listening to Gabor Mate quite a while ago. And when all of those pieces really came together, what I was seeing, what was dictating these patterns, what was creating these clusters was trauma. Trauma from, you know, young childhood all the way up until, you know, previous to when you experienced. And And it's not like physical trauma, right? It's not like I broke my elbow. And so my elbow always acts the same way. It's, you know, I had alcoholic parents and now I have X, Y, and Z. And you just kind of see that over and over and over again. And, and, and you're seeing that over and over anyways, that's really what made me go. I'm really missing something here in the emergency room right? Like I can fix your broken ankle and I can tell you you're not having a heart attack, but, and I'm, I'm keeping people well in that sense. And I'm relieving anxiety. And it was very rewarding emergency medicine. I loved it. I I have nothing really bad to say about it, but I found that there was an even better way to really heal people. Um, and that was through addressing how, you know, ultimately the mind was influencing all of these physical things right? How your mind is, I've literally seen people's minds create hives, right? Mm-hmm. Like hives are supposed to be an allergic reaction. You get a bee sting and you get a hive. Well, people's own psychiatric condition or psychologic state could create hives in their body. And I was like, I, I want to look at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to understand what that is. I want to help people with that. I want to manipulate that right. in a good way. Um, So that's why the jump from emergency medicine to ketamine and then all the other things that it'll entail is because it gives you this opening between those two, the connection between those two things and the opening for a new avenue of healing. So by being in the field of Western medicine, um, it it very quickly pointed out some of the, the limitations of Western medicine, right? And you know, I've seen that too, and that's what I was talking about, you know, Western medicine being primarily focused on healing the body. Um, I even see it in my field of, of psychology and, and uh, mental health therapy, um, you know, that these, some of these sources are unseen. Some of them are under the surface. Some are subconscious, you know, and even there's, there's theories out there, and I've, I've seen some of these, um, some of the results of possibly this theory being correct, but spiritual sources of illness too, you know, um, which Western medicine completely, you know, does not even touch on the spiritual and yeah. same with Western mental health too, which is kind of where my practice is kind of unique because most of my clients come in uh, talking about spiritual issues and I love diving into those, you know, um, yeah. but yeah, you know, for a long time, <clears throat> we thought that all bodily related issues are caused by the body. And now you're seeing definitely, you know, the power of the mind 
not right. just to create illness in the body, but also for healing too. Um, one of my favorite books of all time, I don't know if you've ever read it, it's called The Intention Experiment by um, uh, Lynn McTaggart. And she talks, uh, she, she talks in a, a number of her chapters about the mind's uh, ability to influence us on the physical level too. She goes into research on things like spontaneous remission, where you know, these patients are going to see their cancer doctors. The cancer doctor says, you only have a, you know, a couple months to live. And then the person, because of their attitude, because of their mindset, well, we don't know for sure, but the doctors had no idea how this person healed. And then their cancer just completely disappeared. You know, mm -hmm. um, There are a number of studies showing that someone's attitude during medical procedures can definitely influence uh, the results they get. So people who go in with positive attitudes tend to heal faster. People who have negative, um, pessimistic type attitudes about their health tend to do worse. Um, and that, that that attitude component is really quite interesting and under the patient's control, right? And this sort of leads to one of the major theories in psychedelic medicine that I think should be integrated back into Western medicine, and that is the concept of the inner healer, uh, mm. right? So we talk a lot about that in, in psychedelic medicine and even mental health too, where someone uh, almost needs to recondition their thoughts about how healing occurs. You know, we're, yes. we're almost conditioned into this thinking that if we are sick or have a broken bone or uh, something's wrong with us, then we need to get our solutions from some external source in order to heal us. Um, and I thought that too, for a really long time. And so someone broke it down to me and, and said, you know, even if you get a, a cut, like a huge laceration, like the doctor doesn't heal that cut. You know, they set the stage, they set the set and setting so that the healing can occur. And then the body literally heals itself from the bottom of that cut up to the surface. And once I started, you know, applying that theory to a number of different um, physical maladies, it started to make a lot more sense that if these things yeah. are starting from an internal source, why can we not uh, influence them on that level too? I'm not saying that Western medicine and doctors are not needed they're very needed um, but this this really opens the door for patients and clients to become empowered and really realize that they and their mind have so much more influence over their health and injury and things like that than we had previously been taught and I absolutely. love that absolutely yeah some of my earlier um, some of the other things that really stood out for me was like uh, understanding the power of placebo mm -hmm. and, and really like diving into placebo type studies, right? Like, so if you have like a torn, a, some, you know, torn cartilage in your knee and the orthopedic surgeon goes in, he sticks a couple little, they're called trocars. He sticks a couple of these like pen like things in there and cleans it up and, and makes it all smooth for you and all that kind of stuff. And you can do that, or you can just stick the pens in and not touch anything. And the remission rates and recovery rates are exactly the same. So even if you're not like actually fixing the meniscus, but just by doing the procedure alone, the patient thinks that they're better. And, and I just was like, so flabbergasted by those results. I was like, wait a minute, you know, like placebo is something placebo, I think is a word Western medicine uses to understand how the mind influences the body. Right. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. And so, um, you know, I, in a, in a good way, but the word exploit doesn't really, uh, allow for that. But, you know, I would use that my, to my advantage as often as possible in the emergency room. 
to just help people not give people medicines and not give them a fake medicine and tell them it was something else, but just using the power of their mind in that way. Like you're going to get better from this. You know, this is going to be really easy for you. This is whatever, you know, and like setting, like you said, kind of setting that stage. It made me think about too, like really until the 1920s, 1930s, physicians didn't make patients any better mm-hmm. for a long time. Physicians have been around and not actually improved in- outcomes, but the original meaning of the word was to be a teacher. And so what I think now my job is, is to teach people how to listen to their inner healer and give them all these ways to do it and give them proof that they can do it. Right. Like people love science, unfortunately. And so like, Hey, science shows (laughs) that you can do this and science shows this. And like, did you know this? And it's like, I'm not the one doing the healing. I'm just teaching the patient how to access their own healing. That's a lot of how I see what we do. Exactly. I like to say that uh, if I'm being a good therapist, I'm trying to work myself out of a job. Mm-hmm. You know, and I tell my clients that all the time, you know, who a lot of clients come to me thinking that I'm going to heal them, you know, that I'm a therapist and I'm going to heal whatever's going on with them. And I, I set that expectation from the beginning. I say, look, you know, I'm not healing anything. I'm helping you heal yourself. I'm yeah. teaching you that you have the power to heal yourself. And hopefully one day you will need me. Right. Um, so we're talking about placebo and, and for the listeners out there that don't know uh, necessarily what that means, placebo you know, it's, it's the belief that something is going to be effective and therefore that belief uh, influences the outcome. Uh, there's also an, uh, an, opposing, um, an opposing word, the nocebo effect, uh, which is new to me within the last five or so years, where if you believe that a treatment is not going to work for you, then uh, it influences the outcome that way in, in a negative way. Even if all the science and everything tells you that this medication or this procedure is going to work for you, if you have a strong enough belief that it won't, then I think that that does have a significant impact on whether your body even opens itself up to accept the medication into the system or whether it accepts a a surgical procedure uh, or rejects it, you know, and so really interesting stuff. So in your practice, you know, we're talking about this uh, theoretically, you know, and I know exactly what you're talking about. We're both uh, practitioners in the field, but for our listeners out there who don't know uh, this information, it's coming to them for the first time. Can you give some practical um, examples of application of how you might with a patient who, let's say a patient comes in and they've tried so many things. So they've been treatment resistant to whatever their malady is. Um, how would you engage either the placebo effect or the nocebo effect in, in a situation with the client? And for the listeners out there, um, try and give them something practical that they may be able to apply today to start to realize that power of their mind. Mm. Hmm. I think the first placebo thing that we do is actually take away the label of treatment resistance. Mm-hmm. So um, right now, right, you know, nasal escatamine is, is um, approved for treatment resistant depression. So everybody comes in feeling like I am treatment resistant. I'm up, up, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm all whatever because I'm not responding to medicines. And so one of the first things that we do, like as if it's a choice or something, 
or you're a bad person. That's like really is a very heavy stigma that comes mm-hmm. to the, that is carried by the patients yeah, that we see. People come in and say, I'm, I'm so bad at everything in my life. I'm even bad at healing. 100%, right? Yeah. And so the first thing we do is remove that label by saying, you're not treatment resistant. No one gave you the right treatment. <laughs> so it's not you, it's us. You know, it's Western medicine, it's psychiatry. We have not taught you the right tools. We haven't given you the right opportunities. We haven't pushed you in the right direction. It's on us. And so that's the first thing we do is just relieve that almost like that beginning of the nocebo effect. Like this isn't going to work for me because nothing else worked for me. We're taking that away because it's not that nothing else worked for you. That wasn't meant for you. That wasn't right. And we set that stage and and then that's a message that we reinforce like really frequently. Um, it is interesting. I just have to throw this in as an aside. So one of the first things that my office manager noticed, um, who's he's very passionate about mental health. That's how we kind of got together in this way. One of the very first things he would notice, because he was fielding the phone calls and scheduling the consults and stuff, the patients who like scheduled themselves and were like, oh my God, I read about this and I'm going to get better. And like, can you get me on the schedule right away? Always did better than the patients who were drug in by their family member. The family was like, oh, they're so bad. They need help. They whatever. And you'd bring them in. And their response rate was always less than the person who was like, oh, I know that's going to work for me. Yeah, I see that you know? in the addiction field too. And we talk about that, that you can't heal yourself from it. No one else can heal you from your addiction. Yeah. It's up to you. Yeah, definitely see that. Yeah. So we, one of our other kind of placebo, if you will, um, activities, and one that is, like I said, scientifically proven, love my science, even <laughs> though there's a lot that science can't explain, but <laughs> it is scientifically proven is to help people start doing positive affirmations. Mm -hmm. So what you say about yourself, right? We said what you think about the treatment and what you think about yourself will become the truth, right? So we talk a lot about adopting a power pose a couple of times a day saying that, you know, you're safe, you're strong, there's nothing wrong with you or like whatever the, there's multiple mantras that will help build with a patient for them to say a couple of times a day, because and build the placebo within themselves of, I can do this. Like I can heal. I'm strong enough to do this or whatever. And a lot of times the, the um, phrases seem really hokey to people at first, you know, like, again, people don't feel strong. They feel super weak because they've never gotten better, but it's also like, Whoa, look at how strong you are. You went through this and this and this, and every day you're suicidal and you're still here you're amazing, (laughs) you know? And, and I mean it when I say that, Mm -hmm. but that again is building that, like, oh, I am, I am the placebo. Right. So those are like, and just kind of a brief, um, like peek into how we use that in our work on a regular basis. Yeah. I do that a lot too. Um, my methods are, uh, so I, my practice is a lot of mindfulness-based stuff. So all my clients, whenever they come in, we always sit down and do a 10-minute meditation together uh, to center ourselves into the mm-hmm. session and let go of uh, outside stuff. But also um, my one of my goals is so that my clients leave my sessions each time with a brand new tool that they can practice mm-hmm. uh, for the week that follows. And it's very difficult. You know, a lot of clients come in with that negative self-concept, negative self-talk nonstop. And then when we introduce the idea of, oh, hey, like just 
just say something positive about yourself or listen to this positive affirmations meditation. I always ask them, what was that like for you afterwards? They're like, well, it sounded good, but I didn't believe a word that they said. And that's perfectly normal. That's perfectly normal for the process, right? You got to start somewhere. But the more you do it with repetition, you know, you're, you're rewiring, you're literally training your brain to think or your mind to think differently about yourself. Some of the other yeah. techniques I use, definitely positive affirmation meditations, especially when people have a tough time um, developing their own statements about themselves from their mind. Sometimes they're just, you're like, I cannot generate a positive statement about myself. I, I just can't do it. So we introduce, um, you know, guided meditations. Uh, I love this technique. So I, I tell people that uh, you should get a dry erase marker and on your mirror in your bathroom, when you come across a positive statement that really catches you, write it down on your mirror. And subliminally, you know, each day when you go to yes. in front of the mirror, um, whether you say it out loud or not, if your brain registers that that phrase is there, then yeah. that too is going to play in and start to rewire that stuff. So eventually, within a few weeks or a few months of just practicing, most patients notice that their mindset starts to change out of this negative to a more positive. And then yeah. we definitely start to see... Um, major improvements in their treatment after that switch sort of happens. Yeah. Um, so I kind of want to go back to what we were originally talking to before we get too into the weeds, uh, because this is, uh, this is really, um, you know, when, we when we're talking about mind and parts theory, I think that too is setting sort of a context for some of the later um, discussions we're going to have. So I'm going to start with uh, just a general dis discussion I brought up on the podcast before, and that is location of mind. And you talked about this in the very beginning as well, like my own internal mind. And certainly here in the West, uh, fortunate, I think this is a flaw in Western thinking, but we tend to think that our mind and brain are the same. Uh, we equate those two words together mm -hmm. and we believe that our mind is sort of located in, mm -hmm. the, in the neural structure of the brain somewhere. Our consciousness is up here. Um, and there's a, hundreds of other theories of mind um, that, say the opposite, that our mind is not just in our, in our brain. The brain is maybe an antenna to filter consciousness out from this larger substrate of consciousness that is always surrounding us. And that mind is actually not located in our body or in our brain, but is out there in the world. And that the body uh, as a vehicle, as a vessel, has sensory organs that interact with this larger mind and then filter them into our body and somehow through our cognitive processes, we develop an ego and start to individualize ourselves, individuate ourselves, right? So then we get kind of, we can get stuck in that ego and thinking that we are separate from everything else when in reality, um, you know, we, we could be connected to everything through this consciousness field. So just real quick before we jump into a subset of internal mind and parts theory, uh, what is your idea of location of mind and, and its relationship to larger streams of consciousness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that there's mind here in your head. So I'm pointing to my head, but there's also mind in your body. So and especially, you know, kind of along your chakra system, but like really in the chest and the heart, there's a lot there, right? So the mind exists in all of these pieces. And I do think it is connected to a greater sense of, I guess you could call it mind, or I usually just feel like it's connected to the universe in its entirety. And so it 
our bodies and the physical brain, it is like a filter through which that's coming. And then everything kind of gets expressed. And, and I think it was like an imperfect system. I think there's a couple of things that our physical brains do that don't serve our mind the way that we would want them to. So I think, I think we actually still have some evolving to do in terms of like the structures and how the physical brain reacts to certain things. I think that there's still some finessing if there's ever. What are some examples of that that you're talking about? How the brain doesn't match up. Um, so it has to do with ego strength and it also has to do a little bit with like, um, trauma response and the amygdala, like the sensitivity of the amygdala. And we're in this place where I don't think the amygdala can really, um, properly. And, and I think it's also a bit of like where our society is. The amygdala can't really like register, the um, can't differentiate the severity of threats in mm. this world. You know, they're all, they're every, a lot of things in this world are a threat and, and maybe it isn't the amygdala faults. Maybe it is really just our society, but there is some ability to like, not really be able to differentiate like how severe threats are. Um, and then how then the physical brain makes all of those threat signals very sticky and a little too sticky, I think, because it, it's too complex for our world is too complex for how intensely the amygdala holds on the signals. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, the amygdala being uh, responsible for like flight or fight, uh, fight or flight, right. freeze or faint type um, responses and uh from what it sounds like you're saying that because society is the way it is today, um, that our systems are kind of out of whack and people are not able to um, distinguish between low threat and high threat, that everything is now a threat. Yes. Um, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, that, that would, in my mind, that would create you know greater reactivity in people uh, for situations that don't need that level of response. And that's really quite interesting because our society, the way, at least here in the U.S., like we, for the most part, have all of our basic needs taken care of. We go to a grocery yeah. store and get food. You don't have to worry about uh, large cats and, and animal predators. Right. You know, we don't have a lot of these survival uh, threats that we did when we were evolving in the past. And those, those sort of threat responses have carried forward into this I call it, you know, we're in a marshmallowy type of world these days. Everything's nerfed and cushioned. And uh, it's almost like people are seeking out uh, threats. You know, they're seeking out ways to feel these, these responses, but they don't know how to deal with it. Um, that's really interesting. I think I, for me personally, I attribute a lot of my own threat response to my martial arts training. Um, so I had, a, you know, a kind of a rough childhood where I experienced quite a bit of trauma and sort of my uh, fight or flight response was, was uh, raw at times, you know, and I would overreact to, to smaller threats, but it was out of a protective mechanism because I didn't want things to happen or hurt me like they did in the past. And then with martial arts training and literally like mindful, intentional training around responses, you know, I can now go into a, you know, a seriously threatening situation and not feel as threatened because I know my own capability to handle a threat, right? Like mm -hmm. you with a, being an emergency practitioner too, I'm sure like if you saw a car wreck and, and, you know, a car on fire and people crawling on the ground, needing help, 
um, you wouldn't necessarily run away from that in fear, but you have trained yourself to run towards threat on some level to help uh, people. And I'm the same way. I'll run into a fire to help someone as opposed to running away from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a funny story. I literally, I had to drive on the highway to work all the time. And like one night in the rain, in the dark, on a curve, somebody was in a car crash and like ever the ER doctor, I was like, oh, I better stop to see if I can help. And, you know, like it wasn't after the fact it was like, that was the stupidest thing <laughs> I could have done was like pull over in an insecure, you know, unsecured site to like try and help this person. And um, anyways, I just, I, yeah, I think that, I think that there used to be tiger. So tiger was like crazy stress, but then like when there wasn't a tiger, your nervous system could operate at a very low and your amygdala. It was very, very low. You could really reset down to like almost zero, like Mm -hmm. nothing's happening, spending days, just, you know, I'm granted like hunter gather society. It's not like every day was just like sunshine and roses, like watching Mm -hmm. the clouds, but you could really kind of reset your nervous system in a way that I don't think that we can anymore because I'm, I'm like listening right now, right. There's like a train and there's a sound maker and my kid, you know, it's just like constant, uh, constant notification, constant things that you have to pay attention to. Your brain is always like, is that important? Is it not important? And there's just always this, and then we've made social media. And so do they like me? Did someone respond? Do I have any emails? You know, we've just created this place where we're always trying to be alert. And then that system really gets burnt out and really goes haywire because of it. So, yeah. And I also think that, um, the ego, and I can't necessarily say exactly physically how the ego specifically works. I am not a neuroscientist. I mean, I'm trying to learn all these things. Um, but like, yeah, the ego strength, the way that happens. And I believe there is a very physical nature to that, um, has maybe again, evolved. Maybe it's an America thing. Um, but there's something that doesn't serve us. I think there as well. Yeah, I agree. And I, when you, when we talk about this, uh, you know, response to threat, oh, can you hear my, my co-host in the background, my little puppies? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, and it, it's a little unfortunate too, that people are reacting in, uh, overblown or even aggressive or violent ways to, to people because they have disagreements with them rather than, um, you know, bringing their nervous system down to a place where you can have a talk or a debate with someone um, and be constructive. So I definitely see that too. And, you know, bringing back in parts work and, and parts theory. So for the listeners out there, um, parts theory is not new. Uh, it's been around for a while, but in psychedelic assisted psychotherapies, we do um, engage uh, IFS quite a bit, which is internal family systems. It's not the only one that we engage, but it's, it's become one of the most popular. So parts theory at its most basic says that, you know, we, our ego or our mind is not just one, um, one voice inside of us, that we actually have lots of different parts. Uh, we have lots of different um, voices in our head that respond to different situations, you know, um, a different version of shame may come out with my best friend 
you know, uh, as opposed to the, the version of shame that comes out with a, a potential employer who's interviewing me, you know, uh, my professional self, my therapeutic self, my athletic self, uh, who I am to my wife, you know, all these are not the same person as, uh, you know, some theories would say, but they're each different versions of myself that appear in order to manage the situation. And sometimes these parts can um, override uh, the system and become, you know, um, you know, maybe my angry self is, is very active and it, and it overrides the rest of the rest of the selves. And uh, I become angry or irritable in situations when it's not useful or situations where that's uh, that, that version of myself is not really um, the most effective one to come forward. Um, so, and like I said, there's lots of different uh, ways that parts um, and names for these different parts from various theories. Uh, so my, my own idea of how I conceptualize that is kind of a mishmash of a lot of these different ones. Um, but before you were talking about, you know, the executive self and then other selves too, where the executive self is sort of like the, the uh, chairman of the board, you know, they're not necessarily in charge all the time. Uh, and a good leader, you know, will listen to and allow their, their other voices to come forward and, and use their strengths in situations. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about how you think about parts uh, work and how you use it in your own practice and in your daily life too? Um, so I am not a parts work practitioner. What I know has just been um, from osmosis of working in this field. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I feel a little bit unprepared to answer, or not unprepared, but just like really not the expert in this field. It, IFS training is something I really, really want to do. And I understand the, the pieces of it for in a more practical way and like not getting into the technicality and the language of the parts work, I guess what I, when I think about the voices and the different parts that we have and letting one speak versus the other is um, like around your subconscious and thoughts that we have, but then other voices kind of suppress, right? So there's one part of us that like knows that we're like intrinsically completely good or that we weren't responsible for something or, you know, this is how we want to show up here. But then there's other parts that, you know, have anxiety or like, you can't do that or like, but what about this? And so um, I, again, I don't have the technical, beautiful language of IFS to kind of explain how those are all dancing in our brains. Um, only to say that like, it's great we can often use ketamine to calm down the really anxious parts, the ones that are being the loudest, the ones that are protecting and that to let the other parts come forward. Um, but I don't feel like I'm really answering your question very well. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, you know, and it is just a conversation. So neither one of us are experts on this. We're, we're both kind of exploring this together right now in the moment. Yeah. Um, for those of you out there who are listening to this and like, the hell are they even talking about? I just want to give like maybe two real quick examples of how I have applied parts work to, uh, to be more effective in life. Okay. So, uh, okay. One example, you know, um, if I'm sitting down to write a paper for my PhD program and, you know, usually when I sit down at the computer, either my procrastinator self comes out or the self comes out that just says, uh, you know, it's a, the imposter syndrome self. What am I even doing? Uh, should I even, you know, should I quit before I even start this paper? You know, 
Um, and that's very unproductive for me. You know, I'll sit there in front of my computer for 30 minutes or an hour and write one sentence and just be like, this is a waste of time. Okay. So now when I sit in front of the computer, you know, with intention, and I know that this self is, is habitually coming up and kind of preventing me from getting work done, I'll sit at my computer and I'll just close my eyes for 30 seconds or a minute. And I'll sort of just take a few deep breaths and ask, you know, sort of an internal conversation with myself. Okay, you know, procrastinator self, you're not really needed at this time. Uh, so I'm going to choose to engage uh, the self inside of me that is really excited about this work, that is really interested in, in sharing a message um, that's connected to like my higher purpose. And then, you know, as I'm doing this, like just internally with this mental exercise, I will literally start to feel energetic charge throughout my body. You know, I will start to feel myself scooting to the edge of my seat now because I'm really excited to dig in and then I'll open my eyes and boom, I'm off to the races, you know? And I may have to do that process a few times in my uh, you know, few hours of writing. Um, that's been really helpful. Another example is like if I, if I uh, was planning on going to jujitsu training at night and I'm just like, oh, I really don't want to go. No one, will, no one will know if I just don't go. Like that self comes out, the, the lazy self um, that's telling me I would rather sit on the couch and watch TV. And then again, you know, I have to close my eyes, 30 seconds or a minute, and just really bring out this, the part of me that is so connected to my martial arts practice that loves it with more than anything and bring that out. And when I sit with that feeling just for a little bit and I open my eyes, then I'm really motivated to go in. And I always seem to have better training sessions too when I, um, when I tap into and engage a particular version of myself that is, uh, it's more in alignment with what the task is in front of me. You know? I think we have found it helpful to also explore how those, where those parts kind of like came from and how they did probably at some point in time serve you like as a human being. Right. So this kind of goes back to like all of this negative self-talk that we tend to, like many of us tend to have, right. Like constantly critical. And so it's no different when you sit down and your procrastinator self shows up. And then the other part goes like, Oh, look at that. There's that procrastinator. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, and then all that, that creates a whole nother loop of like, man, I wish I didn't have that procrastinating part. Why is that guy around? Like, I hate him, you know, and just kind of recognizing they, you know, they usually, again, they served a purpose. They came from a place and like doing the work to understand that. And then being able to find compassion for that part, Mm. like, oh, this is my procrastinator part that showed up because if I didn't do something that was perfect, my dad beat me, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like recognizing the procrastinator helped you at some point in time, helps you find again, like a little more love for that part. And then that part can then like step away. Cause like you're, you're intentionally tapping into the part that you want, but you can also ask that part to step away. Like, Mm -hmm. Hey, procrastinator, thanks for showing up today. I don't really need you. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat? Cause I'm really cool with what I'm about to do. Yeah, exactly. I think early on in my own um, self-development, you know, looking into these things, I had this idea, and I think a lot of people have this idea that once you you become aware of these things, and, and uh, one of our you know, one of our initial thoughts is, well, I identified all these negative parts of myself. I'm just going to destroy them. You know, they're not useful for me at all anymore. I'm just going <clears> to <throat> eliminate them and only focus on the ones that are um, effective right. for me. 
And, you know, I have a bit of a, a Buddhist background and I lean that way a little bit. And when I looked into this, as far as what, what some of the Buddhist perspectives were, they, they said, you literally cannot destroy parts of yourself. Like if you destroy the negative parts of yourself, you will cease to exist. Like you will not, it's impossible. You can't do it. And so that what they say is um, really what those parts are, you know, like the procrastinator self or the, the self that gets angry, um, they're just like, they're, they're part of you and they're seeking um, attention, you know? And when they don't get that attention, they tend to force their way out to get that attention. And so when you notice things like the procrastinator self, you can give it that attention say, hey, hi, how are you? I see you. And uh, hopefully get to a place where you're like, you know, I love you. You, you serve me so well. You are, you are an amazing piece of me. And I acknowledge that you're there, but you're just not needed right now. You know, so it's a totally different way of looking at yourself as, you, as, as parts that you can't destroy. And if you're on a mission to destroy parts of yourself that are ineffective, you're going to end up hurting your, yourself in a lot of ways, right? Rather than coming to a place of acceptance. Hey, these things exist. They're still useful maybe in certain scenarios, but I need to gain some greater sense of mental control over these parts and become, become the big boss again and not let these parts rule me. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Uh, I love talking about part stuff. It's so interesting. Um, Jim Fadiman, I've, I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. He just wrote a book called uh, synchronicities of self and yeah. it, it talks a lot about all the different uh, parts theories over um, centuries and all the different um, you know and how they're sort of coalescing now in our modern uh, mental health industry um okay so i, I want to switch gears just a little bit and uh talk to you about motherhood right i'm not a parent um, <laughs> and you are and i'm always fascinated i want to have kids someday don't know if that's going to happen um, but I'm fascinated about not only parenting, but what I call psychedelic informed parenting. Okay? Mm. So what wow. that means to me is that, uh, you know, if you have psychedelic experiences, you come to think about the universe and existence in much different ways than everyday life, you know, and when you come out of those, hopefully you bring back that information and integrate it. It has major influences uh, on how you show up in life, including yeah. parenthood. Yeah. And so after you've had these intense experiences of whether it be oneness with the universe or you have ancestral visions um, of who you were in past lives or who this child is of yours and what relation they are to you in a cosmic sense, not just in this life, uh, and you come out of these experiences, how does um, being psychedelically informed and having these, uh, these different types of experiences, how does that change the way you parent uh, with your kids? Yeah. So I, I was raised very, I was raised Episcopalian. Um, and, you know, I really, like, I wasn't fervent, but I, I was quite Christian until, you know, college. And then in college, I was like, wait, I'm Episcopalian because my parents raised that, raised me that way. And if I had been born in India, I'd be something else. And if I was born in this place, I'd be something else. And like, why is Episcopalian? Why would that be the only thing that there is, you know? And so I really kind of just left religion altogether. And I really didn't even identify as spiritual. I'm just like, this is all just a construct to like help people 
be good people (laughs) is how I've always seen religion, right? This is just the way that we all teach each other to be good people. And so in a way without religion, when my children were younger, I do think it was actually a little bit harder to teach ideas of like what it meant to be a good person and how you behaved because we weren't doing it in a religious context and we weren't doing it in a spiritual context. And we were just like, we were modeling good behavior, but there wasn't like a big picture for it. And now that I've had experiences with non-ordinary states of consciousness and had that connectedness and do also lean quite Buddhist, I have a new framework to be helping my kids be good kids, you know, talking about how we're all connected, explaining that we're all living things and we're all one and why, you know, putting out what you want to come back to you, you know, it's really created this frame and we're, and really created a framework that makes it easier to share the ideas that I had been stewing on for a long time with my kids, but in a way I think that has more meaning. Um, and I kind of can't wait for them to get old enough that, and I can be around when they have their first psychedelic experience. And then we can like, kind of come back and like, talk Mm. about how all the things we've been talking about, you know, over the years may or may not, you don't know, have showed up for them during those experiences. Cause you never know. So I also think that, um, I also think that psychedelic experiences have made me a better mother by showing, what is important versus what isn't important. You know, uh, all of these ideas that like one that I'm actually like that hits a lot for me right now is that, that like I was raised in a very performance focused household in terms of grades and showing up and overachieving. And my kids, they, they don't, they get sick kind of often and they want to stay home when they have like the littlest stomach ache. My kids want to stay home. They're eight and 11 too, for the record. So like they're in third and sixth grade. And there is this part of me that every time when they want to stay home, they have a belly ache. Maybe there's nothing else going on. They don't really seem that sick. There's this one part of my brain that was trained in childhood. That's like, go to school, get good grades. You have to learn. And then the part of my brain that's developed since having these non, you know, these experiences is like, listen, they're a kid. They need to rest. They don't need to go to school five days a week. Love them, keep them at home and they can go back when they feel well, (laughs) you know? And I just don't think my husband and I actually constantly talk about the fact that it's probably not normal for kids to go to school five days a week, you know, most of the year when you're eight years old and that probably isn't exactly what they need. And so if they need to be at home with their parents and reset their nervous system, take a time out, you know, like even a teacher just said, like, it's loud. The lights are bright. It's constantly scheduled. Like that may not be what a kid needs. And so I hope that made sense as an, an, Mm -hmm. an example of how those experiences have really influenced how I parent and, and I'm willing to bet that our kids stay home way more than most other. And I think it is easier too, because my husband stays at home. So it's like, we don't have to do the struggle of who's going to watch the kids. I recognize that influences it, but it feels good to just be like, they're a kid. They need love. They don't need school. You know, they need love and open acceptance and structure, you know, like consistent boundaries and, and that's it. You know, yeah, I think those things that you're teaching them, you know, staying home, resting, being in tune with your body, those kind of things are much 
greater lessons than what they're going to learn in a day of school anyway. You know, um, I love it when, you know, sidebar, but I love when parents take their kids out of school for like a week or two and then go on like an international trip. I'm like, that is so much better education than what they're getting in the classroom. And honestly, I believe that forcing kids to go to school for eight hours a day, five days a week, the only thing that's training them to do is to work in the workforce under, um, you know, conditions that we've found are not even good for us, right? We're training people to work for eight hours a day, five days a week. And uh, that's, not a, that's not a good model. Um, so your kids are definitely at, you said six and 11? Um, eight and 11. Eight and 11. So they're definitely yeah. at ages where they've been exposed to, you know, really big existential concepts like death, uh, things like that, and may not have, um, may not have these, framework or whatever to fully process what that means and what that means to them and their own mortality and those that they love. I'm wondering because after, I know after I've had uh, some non-ordinary states of consciousness, my ideas around things like death um, have shifted so drastically to, to the point where, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of death. Um, I think most people are afraid of how they're going to die. And, um, you know, those kind of fears are, are largely not even present for me anymore because I I feel like you know number one it's the most natural thing that is ever going to happen to us we can't fail at it you know so the fear of failing at, at death somehow uh, is gone um, and then I, I get a sense that you know death is just a doorway to something greater to something next you know it's not the end of anything so how do how do your psychedelic experiences or non-ordinary states, uh, including like breath work and meditation, how do those influence how you talk to your kids about concepts such as death? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, my daughter, who was eleven, she was six when our dog of fifteen years passed away. Mm. And what I loved, uh, it was hard. It was very hard. But what I loved about that experience is that for several months my daughter felt like the dog was coming in and checking on her at night. And we just kept saying that that was true. Absolutely. Callie is coming to check on you. Like she, you know, she loves you. She wants to be there for you. For sure. You are feeling her, feeling her spirit, feeling her energy, whatever you want to call it. Like the, absolutely that's true. And I think it, that just continued and has continued in our conversations of like, that's what happens. You just become part of, you just become part of the universe. And so you're never really gone. You know, you're just in this other place. And like, we talk about around ideas of reincarnation, like, Oh, I'd like to come back as a tree and like, you know, be an elephant or like, who knows what it's going to be. Um, so we talk about all of that. Um, and, and we'll see what happens too, because my, my mother is on hospice. And, and so we've been having conversations about, you know, she's going to be, she'll be dying soon. And what does that mean? And what will it look like? And certainly won't take away all the sadness, but, um, I'm continue to look forward to having those opportunities to inform those decisions for them and to not, um, to not like us, like you said, weren't, I'm not afraid of my mother dying. Like I will be sad. <laughs> I'm going to be very sad, but I'm not afraid. And I'm not like railing against it. You know, we're just like letting it be this very, I, you know, I wish we kind of lived together because it could be even more of a, you know, just like, a, like you said, it's a very natural thing. This is what happens. And mm-hmm. so, um, I'm sure we'll have more opportunity to have those conversations, but I think it's been helpful to not just be like, Oh, they went to doggy heaven mm-hmm. and they're fine. Now they're chasing squirrels. Like it just doesn't give any like real concept 
of what it could be and and um i don't think it really helps them yeah i also don't i i still have this uh um i still i don't particularly feel that de- uh, fear death but i do worry a lot about like my children being motherless you know mm-hmm. like that's the thing that kind of there's where my fear is now mm-hmm. that i'm still like working on mm-hmm. um because i just think that that would stink <laughs> yeah um I'm not sure, I mean, you and I have not really discussed our individual um, altered state experiences, but um, I'm wondering if you've ever had an ego death type experience. Um, for me, there's a common question uh, or common line of thought that comes up for me, like as I'm right on the edge of an ego death. Um, and this line of questioning for a long time kept me on this side of the veil. It would not allow me to pass through and fully release into a, like a mystical type experience. Mm. So the, the line of questioning that would come is very similar to, to what you were saying about uh, your kids being motherless. I'd have these thoughts like, of course, like, oh man, I'm dying. Oh, this is, this is not as bad as, it, as I thought, number one, but what does that mean for what I'm leaving behind? And I have thoughts of like, mm. is my wife gonna be okay? Are my dogs gonna be okay? What is my brother going to think uh, when I die? You know. Um, and then I get these resounding answers from some kind of higher inner source that just keeps saying, it'll be okay. They're going to be okay. Like, even if you die right now, your wife's going to be fine. She's going to grieve, but she's going to be okay. Your dogs are going to be fine. Your brother's going to be okay. You know, everyone is going to be okay without you there. Their life will go on. And yeah. an acceptance of that okayness is the one thing that I've noticed has allowed me to fully let go and release into uh, the other side of that veil and have these out of body type experiences where I have an ego death. Um, so I too, you know, I, I, I hear you on that. I think that's actually a, a pretty common line of questioning. And, and yeah. when, when people are unable to feel okay with their, their ego death, um, it prevents them from, from going to that level. Have you experienced that as well? Well, I have two, I have two thoughts about it. The first one is, is around the questioning of what have I, what am I afraid of? Because Mm -hmm. you're, you know, like when, when people are trying to access non-ordinary states of consciousness, fear gets in the way. And that may just be having a psychedelic experience that might be getting the next level. And that might be a full-blown ego death. It's always, it's fear that's like holding people to whatever state that they're in. And so mm-hmm. it's, you know, that was at that moment, that's what you were afraid of, like what's going to happen to those people. And I can remember having a similar moment where I was like, okay, I need to let go, but I'm not letting go. Like, what am I afraid of? You know? And like point blast, like, point blank, like asking myself the question of like, what am I afraid of? Um, just to get to the next level. And I just thought that would be, that was an interesting thing to pull out, you know, um, in the last several years, I continue to learn around how big preparation for experiences like that can be. And then how big the integration process is. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny that you're bringing me back to an experience from a long time ago in which I was a pillar of light and my kids were pillars of light. And, and the message was like, you know, the universe has my kids as a pillar of light and I should go be my own pillar of light. (laughs) And I'm sitting here going like, Oh, I don't think I fully integrated that Mm. (laughs) experience into obviously like my consciousness. So. Well, I'm glad that this podcast could 
could bring that back to the surface. Maybe yeah. we'll have, you know, have some work to do for the rest of the day to integrate. Right. That. Isn't that interesting? It's yeah. funny. It's very interesting how these things all work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to, you know, since uh, we have about 20 minutes left, I kind of want to shift gears now and talk to you about uh, probably the thing that interests me the most uh, in the field of non-ordinary states of consciousness. And it's something that I think is unfortunately, like it's super fascinating, but unfortunately I think it's being held in the psychedelic space as a, a bit of a taboo topic to talk about. Um, so to set the stage, you know, most of what people are reading about, about psychedelic therapies these days have a lot to do with healing, right? Healing PTSD, healing depression, um, healing chronic pain, you know, these types of things. And I think that's great. And I definitely think that that kind of stuff needs to be out there, people need relief from their pain, uh, or at least means to explore it and heal themselves from it. However, my, my primary interest in psychedelics and non-ordinary states of consciousness is uh, more in line with another, um, I totally forget his name, but he's famous for coining the phrase betterment of the well, um, mm. and talking about you know how can everyday ordinary people who might not be suffering with depression or chronic pain, how can they utilize psychedelics, um, not necessarily to heal things, but to improve or enhance uh, their, their mental functioning, their brain functioning, their body functioning, um, maybe even uh, evolve a little bit faster during this lifetime. Um, and so we hear about these kind of things a little bit with like microdosing, uh, improving creativity, and improving um, eye-hand coordination. Uh, we have stories of uh, you know, Native American and Viking warriors using um, you know, psychedelics when they go out on hunts to improve their hunting and cardiovascular capacities, uh, when they go into battle to reduce pain, um, you know, things like this. And I'm really interested in how we can use psychedelics in a way to enhance things we're already doing well. Me personally, I. I have microdosed during uh, jujitsu competitions, uh, during practices, and I notice a drastic improvement in a lot of different areas uh, from the influence of psychedelics. And again, maybe this is placebo, maybe not, but either way, it's working, you know? And um, I think a while ago, you had told me that you play piano, is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so we, I want to I wanna bring this into the fold a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, flow states that you achieve while, while playing the piano or while doing your work or anything else and how, um, how you think psychedelics may fit into the future of human evolution, of human performance, things like that. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the fight game. You know, I'm a combat athlete and I, I know that within my networks, uh, you know, within the ultimate fighting championship, the UFC, all these fight sports, there are so many fighters now exploring uh, microdosing of both LSD and psilocybin um, for sport performance. Uh, mm -hmm. Not sure if it's made it into the Olympics yet, but I would not be surprised if many of the Olympians were on some kind of microdose of some sort. I know that most uh, uh, professional snowboarders these days uh, have reported being on microdoses for competitions, part of, their, part of that culture. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> I, I think that there is definitely a role for using these substances in a much wider circle than just treating, you know, resistant depression and anxiety. And, 
And for, furthermore, we actually would really like to be treating patients with these substances who have diagnosable mental illness before they become treatment resistant. We'd kind of like this to be, you know, those of us who are especially using them on a regular basis would like this to become the standard treatment. Oh, you're depressed. Go, you know, go do some preparation, do some mushrooms, do integration, you know, and like and hit your therapy. And a year later, your trajectory is way different than like, well, here's your Prozac. Oh, that didn't work. Here's your Paxil. That didn't work, whatever. So, you know, even, even when it comes to mental illness, we want to see these, these medications used sooner and, and more ubiquitously because it does kind of feel like we're reconnecting to a lot of our humanity that we've lost over the years. Right. Um, knowledge, right. That we used to have indigenous wisdom, um, that has again, long, long been lost to the masses that needs to kind of come back connection to the planet. So, um, I'm all for psycho-spiritual growth type purposes. That's what, um, I would consider myself in that category as like not really having diagnosable illness, but knowing that I could be better, wanted to be better, that there was a way to be better, but then kind of not understanding how to get there um, and using these medicines to show the way. I think microdosing and macrodosing are like two superbly different conversations, right? The intention around them is really, really quite different. Um, whereas the macrodoses is trying to show you big picture things and, and big blocks and big openings. Whereas microdosing is like you said, kind of closer to just improving your ability to access flow states, have more cognitive flexibility, improves performance, maybe slightly shutting up that inner critic that's like keeping you down 10%, you know, just like not to bastardize it, but you know, it's like one beer. I always bowl way better after one beer because I'm not like constantly beating myself up, you know, and like microdosing can, can do something similar. Um, LSD for sure has vascular effects. So, I mean, it all makes a lot of sense to me. I think that, um, I think it'll be very useful and I really hope that it does become like widespread. I worry a little bit about, um, I worry a little bit about like accessibility when we start talking about that, if we, you know, all of a sudden just like make it for the masses and then the only people that can afford it are, and it's this way, even with medical at this point are like more wealthy people. We're just going to continue to create a divide if, if it's like the more we use it. And so I'm just cognizant of it. I certainly don't have an answer. It's accessibility is something that my clinic is working, um, really hard on like improving and, and trying to make things, um, more fair for lack of a better word. Um, ketamine treatments are not cheap. Hmm? Ketamine treatments are not cheap. No, they're not. Well, it's a lot. It's a very intensive. It's very labor intensive. It's not the medication. Everybody's always like, oh, ketamine is cheap. Yeah, absolutely. It's cheap. It's not the medication. It's how much time we spend talking with you. It's how much education we do. It's how much time you're in the clinic. It's the, you know, all these, it's so time intensive and all psychedelic treatment is time intensive, right? You're going to do psilocybin. You're going to do MDMA. You're going to be there for eight hours. And like, you have to pay for that, you know? And the only reason why it's not cheap too, when I look at other procedures, like, do you have any idea what a colonoscopy costs, which is like 
10 minutes, 15 minutes, if the GI doctor is good, no, because your insurance pays for that. So, you know, but no one is paying for ketamine treatments. So it looks really expensive, but in the grand scheme of medical treatments, my treatment is actually way cheaper. It's way cheaper than Spravato. It's way cheaper than most procedures. It just looks expensive because insurance is not covering it and buffering what you know, right? You know, like I, when I had a C-section and that bill was like, $50,000, right? <laughs> so, um, and then like IV ketamine compared, well, I could go on about the insurance thing all day, but like, you know, a series of IV ketamine treatments for someone's acute suicidality is way less expensive than getting hospitalized. Mm-hmm. But what does insurance pay for? Throw so you in the hospital for five days and, you know, just traumatize you there instead. So there's a lot, once we get into accessibility and cost and whatever, there's a lot that has to be sorted out but they're definitely, you know, in general, unfortunately, once it's like good for every access of every aspect of your health, it'll only be available for those who can afford it. And we'll just continue that divide. That's my kind of like my biggest. Yeah. I would think that, um, that the accessibility issue is still present, but maybe less of an issue when it comes to microdosing, uh, only because the amount used is so little and most people microdose on their own, not in a clinic, you know, um, people can grow their own mushrooms, uh, and, you know, one tub of mushrooms would last, will last a long time with microdosing, you know, one, one little, uh, jab of, you know, LSD, you could cut it into 10 and it would last a lot longer than just one. So I think the accessibility is a little bit, um, I think microdosing is a little more accessible uh, or will be in the future, hopefully um, to people who uh, cannot afford the more expensive macro treatments uh, yeah. that require many, many hours. Um, so back to, back to the use of uh, the widespread use of microdosing and what, what we're kind of um, picturing for the future, you know, if every, well, that'd be cool, I guess, uh, if everybody was microdosing one day, <laughs> I wonder what the world would be like. Um, but just it's your opinion, you know, if you found out that you needed that C-section surgery, but you also found out that your surgeon was microdosing uh, while he's doing the procedure, would you or would you not be okay with that? I think if, as long as we're like, <laughs> as long as we're sticking to the true definition of microdosing, which mm-hmm. is like subperceptual, mm-hmm. you know, subperceptual doses, then I'm totally fine with it. I laugh when I say that because... And I think, and I think there's an education piece that I'm, I'm, I'm holding in my head because where do you get educated on how to microdose and who's guiding you, Mm -hmm. right? We talk with patients a lot about that, but most physicians aren't, most physicians don't. And some patients need that physician, um, you know, discussion or education or permission or whatever. And some patients are medications that are going to get in the way. And so there's a whole nother piece of like both the medical system getting educated and then like getting people educated who could benefit from it. Mm -hmm. There are lots of like online great programs that I think help people come to microdosing, like, uh, microdosing regimens, like with intention. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, I I coach a lot of people on, um, uh, their dosage and their regimen and still set and setting and how to take most advantage of their microdosing if they're already doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that is still very valuable education that we as practitioners can provide for our clients, uh, rather yeah. than just, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, 
yeah, I think ultimately, I think it would be fine as long as it was like truly microdosing because mm-hmm. that's what it's supposed to be. It's subperceptual and it's, it really, in a way, I relate it to um, serotonergic agents, right? So like psilocybin is serotonergic, LZ is serotonergic, and all of the SSRIs are actually think are doing something very similar to microdosing. Mm-hmm. You're inducing a little bit of co- the cognitive flexibility in the brain and the default mode network via increased serotonin. That's mm-hmm. my own kind of opinion. And so I, I, I think that actually microdosing is a better stand-in for serotonergic agents because humans are not machines. You can't just like put a drop of oil in every day and we're going to respond the same. Our bodies adapt, right? And so I think the biggest problem with psychiatric medications is that our brains are con- are becoming constantly tolerant mm-hmm. because it's adapting. It knows that you're going to put that in there. And so then ultimately over time, it behaves differently, which is why the medications, one of the reasons why I think the medications tend to peter out over a year or two and microdosing regimens typically are one, you know, every three or four days, a small dose every three or four days. And so the brain doesn't really like habituate or accommodate to that because it's not something you're doing every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, you know, and that's that's one of, I think I'm aware of four microdosing protocols that have been spoken about quite extensively, although I have clients coming to me all the time with brand new protocols that I've never seen before that they're doing. I'm like, if that's working for you, fine. Right. Um, yeah. Um, as far as like comparing SSRIs uh, or any psychiatric medication and a microdose, uh, and again, I'm not an expert on psychiatric medication. I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, but what I notice in my clients is that uh, those who microdose, as opposed to those who remain on like antidepressants, have far fewer uh, negative side effects uh, long term. Um, whether it be sexual dysfunction or lethargy or anhedonia or whatever, are the side effects of um, these medications. Yeah, you may get the relief, but if you instead take a microdose, it's probably cheaper and, uh, you know, has almost none of those negative side effects. Uh, I think that's a huge, um, a huge thing that, that Western medicine does not want to uh, address necessarily publicly. You know, they want, they want to keep the money rolling. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I, I hope I'm like, I hope I was understood. I'm not in any way pro the serotonergics. I don't want people to be taking even 10 milligrams or five milligrams of Paxil or Prozac, but I'm just thinking I have just been wondering, I'll talk to a psychiatrist and they'll tell me, well, there's a certain amount of people who get better on serotonergic agents. And so what is it that is making those people better? I've, I am always asking them of my ketamine patients, what is it that's made you better in this situation, you know, so that we can keep continue to harness that benefit. And so I just, I have been feeling like the boost in serotonin, that small boost in serotonin is what gives what I call cognitive flexibility. And so you're not like really rigid in the way that you're thinking about things. You have the option to look at things just a little bit differently or notice things that weren't quite there. Right. And that's like when you're hunting, like, because you're just a little more open, you might hear something snap that you wouldn't have because you were too narrow focused. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how my brain kind of like, you know, conceptualizes it. But I do think that you could, I think that traditional psychiatric medications would be better off if they actually use them only intermittently, mm-hmm. um, 
and then I don't think you would get that like really blunting attenuation of the serotonin system that ultimately leads to feeling like a zombie, sexual side mm-hmm. effects, all that kind of stuff. So it's more about the that, chronic use as opposed to the medication itself. It's the chronic use of the medication. Yeah. Right. It's like if you if you constantly if you constantly are, it's almost like the amygdala again. It's you don't have that ability to differentiate, right? When you're just constantly hitting it like this, there's, you don't see the difference and you have to kind of do the ups and the downs. Um, so yeah, I, I think you could use them intermittently, but I would also rather people microdose and certainly there aren't any major pharmaceutical companies that are pushing that. And, you know, it's going to take decade, decades to really get psychiatry in alignment with that. Um, unfortunately it's really, you know, a a time and time again, I hear like I'm sitting in the doctor's office and there's a poster for Trintilix and they're like, well, why don't you try Trintilix? You know, and it's like really hard to trust your physician is doing the right thing for you when there's a giant ad sitting next to your head for the drug they recommended for you, you know, like yeah, and a brand new Porsche outside the, the drug company bought them. <laughs> right. Right. And we actually recommend a lot of supplements in my office, but it's for that reason that I don't carry them in the office. Mm-hmm. Like I want you to go buy it from Amazon. So you know that I have absolutely no financial benefit mm-hmm. of you taking whatever supplement I'm telling you to bake, you know, not like loading your arm up with stuff on your way out the door and conveniently making more money off of that. We certainly need more practitioners like you out there. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, in the last minute or so, I was wondering if you uh, want to share with the audience any sort of upcoming events. I know that we, we've already passed uh, the, uh, the conference that you headed up last November. Um, mm. So are there any upcoming events, any sort of organizations that people should check out, websites? How may how might they reach out to you as well if they have additional questions? Um, yeah, upcoming events. You know, I did. I stepped away from the American Society of Ketamine Physicians, Psychotherapists, and Practitioners. It's a great organization that's really trying to help work on the issues of accessibility, standardization, you know, like we didn't, there are lots of things in this realm that we didn't touch on today, but they're Mm -hmm. a great advocate and they have an amazing like patient portal. So they have a lot of resources to help patients either find practitioners or know when to pick the right one and and what kind of questions to ask and that kind of stuff. So that's at ASKP.org. I did step down from them to, um, you know, spend more time with my family and be more present and like really do all those things that we talked about earlier, which Mm -hmm. was, you know, another result of doing you know, having non or these experiences that are kind of like, well, you need to be spending your time at home, not all these organizations. Um, the Psychedelic Medicine Association is working really hard to educate practitioners um, and patients in the field as the science comes out so that, the, so that and encourage practitioners and patients to be having those conversations together so they can be doing things like microdosing and macrodosing, you know, with in an informed way. Right. I have patients who are like, oh, I'm going to go do, M- you know, I'm going to go do MDMA with so-and-so practitioner, but they're on medications that are going to get in the way, mm-hmm. you know, so we need to be able to have those conversations, those open, honest conversations. So they're another organization that I'm following that I think would be good. Um, and I can always be reached at um, Dr. Oxley, D-R-O-X-L-E-Y 
at michiganprogressivehealth.com or through the website, michiganprogressivehealth.com. Um, yeah, but otherwise no, no other upcoming events. I'm, I'm trying to be at home a little bit more with my family. My daughter's got dance competition coming up and <laughs> there's a lot going on at home. <laughs> well, I hope that in the future, uh, you and I get to meet in person, maybe at the 2023 maps conference, if you're planning on going there, it's going to be here in Colorado. Um, so I hope that I get to one day meet you and shake your hand and, uh, yeah, yeah that'd be cool. Well, thank yeah. you again. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's, it's the maps conference or it's, um, psychedelic sciences in Denver in yeah. 2023. Is that the one you're talking about? Yep. I yep. am the planning on going, so Good. let's schedule a dinner. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Those, those are the last one I went to in Oakland was huge. Uh, it was awesome. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to it to be on my home turf and I don't have to travel as far. Um, yeah. well, thank you again for joining us today on the podcast. It was yeah, been super informative me. and uh, very educational and meeting those, uh, educator goals of yours. So, um, <laughs> awesome. Thank you again for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on the show. Uh, what an amazing conversation. And, uh, you know, Megan and I recorded this a while ago and it's, you know, I've had it sitting in my, in my hard drive for a little bit now. Um, so thank you, Megan, for being so patient with me and getting it out. And thank you to the audience for being so patient with me, uh, in, you know, waiting for these wonderful episodes to come out. I promise I will get back on, on the recording more often, more frequently, because I know you guys have been screaming at me for more content. So don't worry, that'll be coming. Thanks again, Megan. And uh, again, if everyone can please like and share on all social media, go to our YouTube page and go check out our website, mind-ops for the YouTube and mind-ops.com for the website. All right, folks, thank you for joining us today. And until next time, be good to each other. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.